You're listening to the sermon podcast from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard. Christ is risen and it is the Easter season and we are continuing to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection, to think together and feel together how the power of God is at work, bringing life out of loss and new hope where there was only despair. Here's this week's message. The first scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any along the way that belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he was going along and approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why have you come to persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Before we continue in the scripture this morning, let's pause for a moment of prayer together. Let us pray. Holy God, speak now, for your people are listening. Grant that the words of my mouth, indeed the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Scripture continues from there. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up. Go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, 
Something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after eating some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this very name? Has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, some time ago, thanks to the Facebook algorithm, I discovered the mesmerizing world of wood turning. For those who are unfamiliar with wood turning, this is when a carpenter takes a piece of wood and puts it into a machine called a lathe that spins it around very, very quickly. And then the carpenter uses hand tools to slowly carve away parts of the wood to make a a ball or a lamp bottom or a vase or a cup or a bowl. Uh, These things gradually emerge out of the wood as, as it's peeled away. And there are dozens, probably hundreds, probably thousands of videos like this of artisans performing this technique. One particularly memorable one begins with this huge, uneven trunk of a yew tree being put into the lathe, and it's just this really awkward shape, and it spins around, and after a seemingly endless time lapse of wood chips flying off it and little strings, almost like confetti, being peeled away from the wood, it's no longer this uneven tree trunk, it's this perfectly round half-sphere. And then, and then the artist turns it around and, and slowly but surely hollows out the inside of the sphere until it's a bowl. And my favorite part of these videos is always at the end when they're putting on the finish because the wood all of a sudden becomes just this shiny and colorful in a way that you didn't, couldn't see it before under all the sand and all the dust um, until at the very end, the videos always conclude with these glamour shots of whatever piece has been created. These wood-turning time lapses are an example of what are called process videos, which cinema studies professor Dr. Salome Aguilera-Skversky describes in her book The Process Genre as representations of the step-by-step fabrication of an object. Even if wood turning isn't your thing, you've probably seen one of these videos online, whether that's one of those one-pot cooking videos, or perhaps you've seen their older form, like the TV show How It's Made, which was a favorite of mine when I was a kid, or even older on the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Some of his episodes, he would go to a factory and show kids how things were made, like crayons or towels or macaroni. According to Dr. Aguilera Skversky, the process genre is always reflecting on the interaction of human labor, technology, and nature, making something concealed, visible, in a detailed and absorbing format. And this morning's scripture is an example of this process genre. 
We can call it how Paul is made. It's a process video that begins with the raw material of Saul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church. He's struck from his horse on the Damascus Road. Having been rendered blind by the light of Christ, he has moved on down the production line into a house on the street called Straight, where Ananias comes and applies the technology and human labor of the church, laying his hands upon Paul and blessing him in the name of Jesus, and then baptizes him and shares a meal, perhaps even what we call that technique of communion with him. And then the episode ends with the finished product. The Apostle Paul powerfully proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. It's a truly astounding and confounding transformation. It's way better than a wood-turning video. But the thing about those videos, the thing about these process videos, is that over time they tend to become a little bit monotonous. I've seen videos of bowls being turned out of tree trunks, but also little pieces of scrap wood connected with epoxy, bundles of sticks glued together. I've seen all sorts of videos at this point. But I will admit that the process gets a little tedious after a while. Eventually, it becomes downright boring. I increasingly found myself starting these videos and then skipping to the end just so I could see whatever the finished product was so I could move on about my day. And now I've moved on from wood-turning videos. Now I'm more into the animal voiceover videos instead. <laughs> and I worry that that's what can happen with this story of Paul's conversion. And we've heard it so many times, we know the form so well that it can become somewhat monotonous and tedious. Seeing the light has become a cliché for just about any clarifying or transformative moment. Talking about a Damascus Road experience is often taken to be the conversion experience par excellence for every Christian. We're all supposed to have our own Damascus Road experience, right? Perhaps you even have one of these. The problem is not that the transformation is not incredible. The problem is that we often focus too much on the beginning when that light shines and strikes Saul down, and then the end, the finished product, that bright, shiny new Paul, and skip over the process of conversion. But that's where I want to direct our attention today. And I think we have good reason to do this. First of all, visions from heaven do not come along every day. In fact, I think they're probably a pretty rare thing, because if they weren't, then there'd probably be a lot more people worshiping with us this morning. <laughs> and I don't mean to deny the possibility of such experiences. To do so would be to deny the possibility that God can act in the world as God wills. Indeed, if there is anything to see in this passage, it is that God is indeed able and willing to intervene, to change, to transform, and make all things new, as the prophet Isaiah put it. Visions from heaven may be rare, but change is a constant in our lives. And how we change, how we are transformed, that is critical to the quality of our character 
and our community and our commitments. And so we should be wary of focusing too much just upon that singular moment on the road when the voice from heaven speaks and the light shines down because this is where it's important not to overlook. The result of that is that Paul is struck blind. He cannot see. This vision he has takes away his vision. It disables him and leaves him in the dark. And of course, change can do that to us. It can leave us in the dark about what the future will hold. When Saul set out for Damascus, he had a clear plan. He had a clear vision. He had papers in hand. He was ready to continue his campaign of citizens' arrests of Jesus' followers. He testifies in other places that although he was young, he had risen through the ranks of the temple hierarchy thanks to his zealousness for the ways of the Pharisees, his adherence to the laws. He'd studied at the feet of one of the high priests, Gamaliel. He was probably there when a member of this new Jewish sect of Jesus followers named Stephen had been brought before the council in Jerusalem. Stephen had tried to make the case to the Jerusalem council that Jesus was the Messiah. But so outraged was the council by those claims that they immediately beat him and bound him and dragged him out of the city where they stoned him to death. And Saul was there. He held the cloaks of the council members while they were stoning Stephen so they wouldn't get blood on them. And it says in Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 1, he approved of their killing. Again, in Acts 22 and 20, Paul himself says, I was standing by. I was approving and holding the coats of those who killed him. It's raw material here. The Saul, he was a young man of ambition on a mission with a vision until a blinding light took that away from him. And we can thank God for that. We can thank God for an intervention to stop a young and violent man from carrying out his plans because we have all seen too many times how tragic it can be when young men are emboldened and enabled and armed and allowed to carry out their violent designs in schools and grocery stores and synagogues and mosques and churches and on city streets and against their domestic partners. Would that that violence was interrupted. That is a change we can hope for and believe in, that we can pray for and ask God to come and intervene in. We want the violent young men to be stopped. We want them to be blinded. But what about the rest of us? We who are just living our lives, making our own plans for tomorrow, for next year, for the next five years. Would we like to have those plans those visions taken from us? Would we like to have our lives fundamentally changed in some way? Would we welcome that change? Would we welcome that conversion? I think the answer to that question for us can't be made clear out there on the road in the moment it happens. It only becomes clear through the process of conversion which doesn't end on the road. It continues in that house 
on the street called Straight, which was the central thoroughfare in Damascus. At one end was the king's palace, at the other end was the Roman temple of Jupiter. This was the heart of Roman imperial power in that region, the seat of the vassal king, Herod Agrippa. And there on that street, there in the heart of power, Saul is essentially entombed. He can't see, he can't eat, he can't drink. He's just lying there, waiting. Not dead, but surely not fully alive. Until on the third day, a name pops into his head. And he has a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him and healing him. And perhaps at that moment, perhaps he begins to hope again that the tomb won't be the end for him. But, but let's turn away from the tomb for a moment and look instead to the disciple named Ananias. He's no apostle. He's not one of the twelve He's just a regular old follower of Jesus, living and working there in Damascus, probably going to church on Sundays in someone else's home with just a few other folks. Ananias is just a regular guy, and I think for that reason he's often overlooked. Most accounts of Paul's conversion really do make a big deal about his vision on the road, but it's important to note that there are two visions in this story. And the second one, I think, is actually the more important one. Because unlike Paul, when Ananias hears the voice calling his name, he doesn't have to ask who it is that is addressing him. He already knows and recognizes the person of Jesus because he has been a disciple worshiping Jesus, coming into the presence of Christ through prayer and community and the sacraments. He has no doubt that it is the Lord speaking to him. So he responds, here I am. But then, as is often the case when someone has the temerity to say, here I am in the Bible, Jesus gives him an absolutely bonkers assignment. He says, I want you to get up from your nondescript apartment building in this outlying neighborhood and go to the center of the city, to the house of a man named Judas, that should give you pause, to lay your hands on the persecutor you've been hearing whispered warnings about for weeks in order that he may regain his sight. That's insane, right? You want me to go to a dangerous place with dangerous people with nothing but my hands and a blessing and help the very person who is hurting me and mine. I mean, we know what happens when defenseless people stumble into the company of violent men. In this day and age, we know all too well about how fear and paranoia and a culture of standing your ground can make it so that approaching a stranger's house, even by mistake, can get you shot, even killed. We think of the fear of persecution as told in the Bible as some kind of ancient history, but fear is the lived reality of so many people, most of whom don't look like me. The kinds of people whose parents have to worry every time they leave the house that they will stumble into the company of violent men and they won't return home. 
So Anna knew, Ananias knew that then. And Jesus knew that then too. Jesus knew what happened when you walk defenselessly into the company of violent men. That is what happens. But he told Ananias to go anyway. And so that's what he did. He got up and he went to the house, Judas's house. And he didn't just lay hands on Saul to heal him. First, he addressed him. He called him brother, Saul. And then he told him that he was laying his hands on him in the name of Jesus. Both of these were overtly Christian gestures. He was not hiding the fact that he had come in the name of Christ to heal this persecutor who now can see him clearly and is no doubt within arm's reach of a sword. But Saul the persecutor was no more. Something like scales fell from his eyes and he saw someone willing to risk everything to help him. Someone willing to be vulnerable enough to share his pain to come and to minister to him. Theologian Andrew Root describes faith, discipleship in Christ, as the encounter with the person of the living Christ. But receiving the gift of the very presence of Jesus, he says, we are not sent into a process of moving up, of self-improvement, but rather instead to moving out from faith into love. Discipleship is about being our neighbor's minister, By sharing in their person, just as Jesus comes to share in ours. Christ rose from the grave, dead, then alive, an astounding and confounding transformation. It's proof that God can intervene in the least probable places to minister and heal and make all things new. And it is that same process of vulnerability, of ministering to one in need that we see in Ananias, following Christ to the places where Christ leads. Not necessarily where we are comfortable or even welcome, but where we are needed. Ministry is not simply about creating a bigger and better version of ourselves as individuals. Ministry is about transforming the world. Paul went from being a man of violence to one who boasted only in his weakness, who proclaimed that love is the thing. Love is greater than faith and hope. He admonished the church of Jesus Christ in every age to live peaceably together, not by seeking to outdo one another, to be better than one another, but to outdo one another in service and humility, in vulnerability, and in ministry. That is what Paul received from Christ and what he gave to us. So today, friends, we have to trust that process. Trust the techniques and the technology of the church, the techniques of worship and prayer, the sacraments of baptism and communion, the stewardship of our traditions and our resources. Trust this process 
Because the process of ministry, of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable in order to meet others in their vulnerability, that is the thing that creates something new and life-giving. Trust the process, friends. And we can do ministry here that genuinely changes things for the better. That changes us for the better, yes, but that changes the lives of others as well. Wherever we meet them, in whatever vulnerability or pain we find them, if we, not just the pastor, but all of us, can be ministers, can commit ourselves to this kind of ministry, this selfless and vulnerable ministry, then we need not be afraid of violence, of loss, or of change, because Christ is the minister to us. Christ is with us. Christ is for us. Christ is alive. He is risen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope that this week's message has been a blessing to you. It was a blessing to have you listen to it and share, at least for a little while, in our life together here at Union Congregational. To find out more about our church, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or find us on social media at Church by the Park. The theme music you're hearing is Dusk Till Dawn by Track Tribe. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our risen Christ be with you.